Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Johnson. I'm here with my brother, Derek, and our guest of the day, Ms. Zena Applebaum uh, from Toronto, Canada, uh, Toronto, Ontario. Hey, Zena. How are you hey, doing? Hey, how are you? Never better. Living the dream. Derek, how are you doing? Doing good today. Great to be with you guys, gals. Cool. Now, which, which uh, edition are we up to? Is this five or is this six? I can't remember what order we're up to. I think you? we're... We're technically at like number five now. That sounds yeah. about right. So Zena, you may know that we are, we are getting a little bit of a backlog uh, booked into this. Uh, by the way, today is uh, Tuesday, March 2nd. Uh, we were just discussing how uh, the Toronto Jays, Blue Jays are playing, uh, beating the Phillies right now at, yep. at home, I presume. In Florida. Oh, they're in Florida. Sure. Yeah. What, Spring training. Uh, that shows how little I know about baseball. So we've established <laughs> that. Yeah, down in Dunedin. You've, you've, you're a longtime baseball fan, aren't you, Zine? I am a longtime baseball fan. And I grew up in a baseball home with my father yelling at the TV. And uh, now I have a kid who plays very competitive ball. So my whole spring, summer, well, fall and winter is all baseball all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's good. It's got to be fun. Your oldest son. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's my oldest. Yeah, yeah. The little guy's not into it. Oh God, no! Anything sporting, and he's he runs the other way. So he's more of the the arts and entertainment camp than he is the sports camp. So it's good. I have an athlete and an artist, and we get to see how both brains work and what they gravitate to. It's good. Certainly uh, helps you understand nature versus nurture. I didn't do anything differently with either of them, right? They're raised in the same home, but they're completely different and it's all them. It's all their personalities. It's my, it's my own little, uh, ethnographic and anthropological study. Maybe they'll go up, go on to have a business together someday. Yeah. Eric yeah. and I were pretty different as kids too. Hey, you wouldn't have predicted <laughs> this. That'd be Let's cool. Yeah, let's get into this. So this obviously yeah. the podcast is titled Running Into the Fog. Um, you know, minutes before the recording started, you mentioned uh, lockdown in Toronto. Um, probably a little fog associated with that with, this, uh, with regards to not uh, being in person with colleagues for a while. You know, what, what type of fog are you navigating these days? Thick one. Um, I think it's been a really tough year. It's been a really tough year for people, I think, emotionally. I think it's been a really tough year. People are feeling very isolated, um, very alone, and very uncertain, right? Like, I think the whole notion of running into the fog is the uncertainty. And if, you know, Eric's story about, like, setting up shop in, what was it, 12 square feet? Um, like, that's what we're all running into, right? Like, this whole world of uncertainty and what's going to happen next and, um you know, I can give you a really good example that's relatable to anyone and very simple. Like my car lease was up and we're in lockdown. Mm. And you're like, something as simple as do I renew my lease? I can't renew the lease. Do I go, I can't test drive cars. Like, what do I do? And it's in it, you know, it's the kind of thing that stresses you out because you, your normal channels aren't available to you. And so you kind of take, take a leap of faith and do something you otherwise wouldn't do. Um, but it's something that's totally relatable and you can apply that, you know, business makers are making really big decisions, not knowing what's coming next, um, knowing that they have something looming in front of them. If their leases are coming up for their business space, do you lease more space? Do you claw back? Are people going to work from home? Do you invest in technology? Like, what do you do? And how do you make those decisions? So I think there's, 
everybody is running into the fog in some ways. I think the analogy holds true. It's, it's a really weird, uncertain time. Um, you know, you guys down South are getting vaccinated far faster than we are up here. Huh. Um, so while the borders open, what, what will the rules be? And I think it's, um, it's a race to get vaccinated or to get another strain. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're all running into the fog. I'm sure you feel the same. Well, that's part of the reason for the title was um, you can't see very far in front of you, but it doesn't mean you have the luxury of just sitting there and and waiting. And uh, there is a there is a need and a bias even for action in situations like this. We we aren't sure what to do. We've got new options available to us. And by the way, I think I've said on here that three of my four kids are probably just fine with the status quo. They don't mind lockdown. They kind of dig it. In fact, they're, uh, they're having fun with each other. You know, they're good friends. And so they, they'll hop on and challenge each other to a Minecraft building tournament. And then they have like a, a panel of judges figure out who built the best, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but you know, not, I, I feel that uh, a, lot of, a lot of families are really trying to figure that out and trying to figure out, you know, how do we just keep ourselves busy? How do we make it through virtual school? Um, how do we get our kids uh, to, to not think that this is the permanent normal? And at the same time, you've got a job to do and your husband's got a job to do and you're all trying to sort of stay out of each other's hair, even while you're intensely entangled in each other's hair. So um, how have you figured out how to cope with all of that and, you know, have some normalcy? I don't know that I have. Mm. (laughs) I mean, look, we have, and thankfully my kids are back at school um, during the day, but even that's a really different experience, right? They're back at school with their masks on all day at recess during, so they take it off during lunch. and the schools like send five masks a day. Um, so like, it, it's crazy. And you know, how do we manage it? It's hard and you don't know when you're gonna get the explosions. You don't know when, who, first of all, you don't know who in the house is gonna have the explosion on what day and whose tempers are a certain way because they haven't been able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish because the internet wasn't working or because um, everything takes long, you know, I'm going to run out to the grocery store to do something, but then there's a lineup of 25 people. So you could be triggered by something so insignificant that used to take five minutes that now is like this whole extra process. Um, so getting the kids to school in the morning is a process, filling out their form in the morning and remembering and, and not getting the reminders, you know, they'll ping me at six with the fill out your daily COVID survey thing. And then if I don't do it by eight, I get the, the time is now 8 a.m. You have not filled out your COVID survey. You are a terrible parent and you're going to give the entire school COVID. Uh, doesn't quite say that, but that's, you know, that's the intonation of it. That's what it uh, sounds like when you hear it go off. Totally. When you read it, you're like, oh. <laughs> um, and so there's all these extra layers of, of challenge. And my husband is similar to you guys. My husband is running a small business. So he's got 30 people, 35 people that he has to keep sane and keep humble through this whole thing and figure out if they do go into the office, you know, how does he do that safely? How does he make, make those preparations? I work for, 
um, a major global corporation that has 22,000 employees across the world, all in different stages. And so I'm bombarded by his stress and I hear it. He's also very loud. I've learned being at home and working with him that he is really loud on the phone. Um, and so you hear his stress, which is different than my stress. Um, and you got to keep things going, right? Like I can't not do the homework with the kids and I can't not feed them and make sure they get to school. Um, so how are we coping with it? Honestly, we take day by day. Yeah. We anchor ourselves on the things that matter to us. So making sure that we, you know, we celebrate our holidays, that we um, focus on the things that ground us and that we talk to our families, that we do Zoom calls, that we try to engage as much as possible with our regular activities. Um, so I mentioned the son that's really into baseball. Once a week, he has a training session with his team for an hour and a half and they all find a place to have a workout together and they have a trainer who comes and trains them online through zoom. Um, my other son has a music lesson once a week and it grounds him, you know, like that's his thing. And he looks forward to that. And, um, you got to find those things that ground you and take the time, like physical activity is huge. Going for walks is huge. Those are really the things that we do to kind of stay sane. Yeah. So I'm we curious, what'd, you, what'd, what'd you do with the car? How'd you, how'd you deal with that? Uh, I bought my lease out, which I never would have done. I never considered keeping the car after four years, but I barely drive it. It was actually my father-in-law who I was talking, we were talking about what to do. And he was like, so you're going to buy a new car to sit in the garage for a year. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a good use of my money. So nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy the four-year-old car, let it sit in the garage and then sell it when the time comes. Right on. That's a good one. Eric, I entered up for you. Where, where are we going next? I was going to say, I was trying to remember where we met uh, because it was, I want to say it was so long ago that I can't remember, uh, but it seems like I've known you forever. So uh, it must have been SLA. I'm I guessing. think it was Skip. Was it Skip? Okay. Skip, Toronto that... Board of Trade, David Gibson event. Was it then? Boy. Seems like I've just known you forever, so it's hard for me. I to know when. it's hard to imagine how long ago that was. Must be going on twenty years, though. Pretty probably pretty close. So Derek just celebrated eighteen years with the company yesterday. As wow! So, the joke uh, is, I'm finally legal in true. this country. Well, not in that country. that's right. Yeah, true, true. So Zena, you've you've navigated. Uh, you know, it's probably a little bit go into the unknown of moving from a major law firm to a major uh, global corporation that uh, obviously services law firms amongst many other uh, components and verticals. What, what was that uh, pivot like for you? Uh, really scary. It took me a really long time to get comfortable in what I was doing, but I did it for that reason. So I had become really comfortable where I was. I really liked the work that I was doing, the people I was doing it with. You, I mean, you know the story more than anyone. Building out a competitive intelligence function um, anywhere is tough. At a law firm, it's really tough. I had built out a team of, you know, three or four analysts. Um, I had done it all. I had seen it all. I had spent 12 years at my firm. I was very, at my most recent firm. I was most comfortable. Um, but I was also becoming really stagnant. And, you know, I use Skip and SLA and I have all these great outlets and I was writing books and I was doing things with my time to not be bored. Um, but I felt like I could do more and I could learn more. And I knew that if I didn't do it soon, 
um, I was going to be pigeonholed forever into that role. And there was nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with sticking at a role and doing well with it. Um, I just felt like I could do something different or I wanted to challenge myself and see if I could. And so when the opportunity came up to join Thomson Reuters, um, I hadn't been with a sales org in 15 years. I hadn't been with a sales org at the level that I was coming into Thomson Reuters. And I was used to the CI world. I was also used to law firm land and law firm land is very different, right? So you don't have one bottom line. You don't have one sales force. It's a partnership. You effectively have as many uh, material voices as you do partners in a firm. So the firm I was at at the time had 360 partners. It hovers around there still today, um, but it's a very, very, very different environment. And I knew it was going to be tough, um, but I expected it to be, you know, a couple months and I would settle in. The truth is, I think, like I said, eight or nine months before I was like, I get it. I understand what I'm doing here. I understand how this fits into the greater context of Thomson Reuters, not just Thomson Reuters in Canada. And by the way, where Thomson Reuters sits in Canada, because it's one of Canada's largest um, and most successful companies, but a lot of its employees are in the U.S. Uh, or globally, for that matter. So just understanding all of that nuance and understanding my role in this new world was very challenging. Um, but I'm glad I did it. It was definitely some running into the, or whatever the analogy there is, running into the fog. Um, I knew the market. I knew the people that I was going to be approaching, but I didn't know the tactics. Mm. Um, and so I think as long as you know two of the three, you're okay. Like, you know the market, you know the people, you know the tactics. If you got one of the two of the three legs of the stool, you can figure out the third one. Um, but it was, it was a shift for sure. Yeah. It's good cool. And you just recently came off the SLA board. Well, not recently, but a year or two ago. Yeah. Tell us about uh, tell us about that. SLA, the Special Libraries Association, obviously is a place that uh, you've had much more sort of direct leadership with. We've always been a big fan and supporter and sponsor and exhibitor and uh, instigator, uh, interlocutor occasionally. But uh, what's uh, what's that about? Tell us about that part of your. So it's interesting. Like I'm not a librarian. Um, I think you've probably read, I, I talk a lot about being a non, so a non-lawyer in the legal world, a non-librarian in the library world. Um, and now I'm a non-technologist working for a technology company. Um, I think it brings um, an interesting perspective. And I've told this story before, but when I was at Bennett Jones, when I was at the last law firm I was at, um, at some point, competitive intelligence got nested in the library. And the director of library services said to me, I want you to join SLA and I want you to go to this conference. And I said, I'm sorry, you want me to do what? He said, join this library association and go to this conference. And I was like, I, I don't want to go to a library, I, let, let alone that I don't want to be reporting into a library. I don't want to be going to a library conference. And she said, she had some cho choice words for me that I won't repeat in company. Um, and then said to me, just do what I tell you to do. And, you know, God bless her. May she rest in peace. She passed away of ALS a few years ago, but she... Oh. Um, she really opened my eyes to what librarians are capable of and what librarians can do and what the value they provide in the CI process. So I went to my first SLA conference. Um, I met some wonderful people and I learned that librarians have all the skills and curiosity that a good CI practitioner needs. They're just skilled in a different way. And um, they don't have the commercial mindset necessarily. They don't have the marketing and business development sales vernacular, but that's all stuff you can teach. The curiosity, you can't. 
um, and the, the hunt for the most, uh, the data with the strongest integrity, they have that, that energy and they have that vibe. They also have curatorial abilities. Um, they also have the ability to take vast swaths of information and organize it in ways that make sense. Um, and so they can organize chaos. They can organize chaos of thoughts. They can organize chaos of data. They can organize chaos of both qualitative and quantitative data. And I think library schools are moving more towards this as you see the trend around iSchools. And so SLA for me was really the opening of understanding this idea that competitive, I always thought of competitive intelligence as a series of competencies um, rather than a profession. And, and Craig Fleischer and I talk about this all the time. Um, but that was really the first time where I recognized there was a whole nother segment of the population that does what we do, but gives it a different title um, or, or it's under another rubric, but it's all part of that same process. And so we could bring them in and um, it's been, a, it was a really great home for me. I was glad to be able to give back three years um, sitting on the board and to give back to the community and, and uh, a community that's helped shape me quite frankly in my professional life. Um, I still love what that association is about, but I'm not going to lie that having time back in my calendar um, has actually been kind of nice. It's kind of a second job, right? When you're at the level of volunteerism where you were at, it was really probably, I don't know, were the hours about like having a second job? Absolutely. And particularly when I, I think any professional association, and um, we're all part of a couple of them together, um, it's a tough time, right? It's a tough time to be in a professional association. I think the idea of um, networking has changed and notwithstanding the, the uh, pandemic, which has totally changed things entirely, but this idea that you belong to an association because that's where you meet like-minded people and you get together once or twice a year in person and talk shop, that's evolved, right? People have local meetups. There's, it's a much easier world in which to connect and find like-minded people. Um, than it once was. I think titles and professional roles are changing. I think since 2008 with the financial crisis, the way businesses are spending money um, and the ways in which they're promoting their professionals to become, uh, to further their professional development is changing. So the whole notion of any professional associations I think is rapidly changing. And to be on the board of any of these associations right now, um, it is like a second job in a lot of ways. It's a second job with a very different nuance to it as well, because everybody is a volunteer. Yeah, no pay, I was going to say. <laughs> no pay, and it's all, it's all passion, right? And passion is, mm. not, passion is not grounded in anything um, concrete. And so it's hard to deflect when people are like, this is what I believe. And they're like, well, you may believe that, but that's not going to achieve our end goal. And so it's very hard to sometimes deal with people's emotions in those, in those settings. I want to go back to something you said, Zena, and you've been such an advocate for, for the library functions, librarians in general, and you've used those three terms, market, people, and tactics. And if you can master two of them, you can usually learn the third. Um, within the librarian community that you've had exposure to, which of those two do you think they have mastered and, and or have the greatest chance to master? And how do they go about filling any uh, gaps or I use the term deficiencies, but I mean it nicer than that. What, how, do, how do librarians go about that in order to become the well-rounded professional that you have uh, demonstrated yourself to be? It's a great question. So I think librarians have the tactics down pat. I think library school, 
um, iSchools, wherever you go. And I've taught at a couple of them. So I, I have some intimate knowledge of how they work. I think library school teaches you tactics 100%. It's, it's almost like um, graduate trade school, like going to law school or medical school, right? Like it teaches you how to be the thing. And the thing is to be a librarian, an archivist, a curator, whatever. So I think the tactics they have, I think the people skills they have too. Librarians by and large are service oriented individuals. They're people who want to serve. You don't become a librarian because you want to research um, for yourself. You become a librarian because you wanna help other people do their research, because you wanna help other people um, enjoy text, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or whatever. So I think librarians have the people thing, they have the tactics. I think it's market that they fall short. Um, and this is where I think you get a lot of your MBA types, you get a lot of um, business strategy types, marketing and business development people who are much more market oriented that do really well in CI as well. And so one of the ways librarians can do that, um, and I wanna call them information professionals because not all of them are certified librarians have gone to library school. Some are library techs, some have, uh, have done other things in, in the space. The way you learn the market is by recognizing first and foremost, and this is hard, that information for information's sake doesn't sell. And I don't necessarily mean that to be commercial, although there's always, you know, if you're working for a business, there's a commercial element to it. If you're working for a nonprofit, um, there's some kind of funding element to it. But what I mean by that is there's gotta be a bigger reason that you're looking for the information that you're looking for there's gotta be a bigger reason that, that there's something else at play that your company, your organization, wherever you're working for fits into that context. So that's the world that I think librarians maybe don't have as good a grasp on um, is they don't think about the context in which, I shouldn't say they don't think about, they're not trained to ask the right questions. They're not trained to think about the world beyond the request in front of them. And that's where mm. I think they fall short a little bit. And where, quite frankly, I've been able to have some success in helping them understand that and helping them understand how to deliver the message in a way um, that elevates their skills to another level. I was going to add that I think the reference interview is a double-edged sword. Um, 10 years ago, I remember uh, sitting, well, maybe 11, I remember sitting at a, an SLA general uh, session event and they were revealing the results of a survey. And this was right around the time that that uh, Association of Strategic Knowledge Professionals um, renaming, rebranding question was being voted on. And I think it had just been defeated. And uh, this was the conference right after that. And they had, or it might've been just before that, but they had a survey. And I remember the survey was, they asked the info pro librarian professional set what they're uh they didn't use the word highest calling but that's essentially what they were asking them you know what's what's your greatest value uh in, to your organization that you serve and then they asked their clients and i remember that the answer was uh among the librarians was curating the collection uh and i thought well that's a noble uh calling i guess that sounds pretty cool but among their clients the number one answer was competitive intelligence and it was that moment when that delta between their own opinion of their value and their client's opinion of their value created economic opportunity for 
people like us uh, who want to go help them figure out how to deliver on that. So talk to me a little bit about that. I think what you're saying there is there's a, there's a sense of empathy that the librarian has to have about the analytical impact of the research that the client is trying to do and the utility of it that sometimes gets lost because there's this focus on more of the methodology and the, the needle in a haystack. Effect. Yeah, the pursuit of the right information at the right time, right. but how is it gonna get used? Right. And this notion that um, enough is enough, like you don't, more research is not gonna help you get to the answer faster or better. Um, and I think we've become really good at looking at multiple sources and triangulating our sources. Um, but we need to start thinking more creatively about what some of those sources can look like. And that's, you know, where primary intelligence comes in. And again, primary is not something taught in library school and probably shouldn't be because that's not what it's about. Um, but this is where that the delta between um, theory and practice comes into play, right? So in theory, everything's available to you as you need it. But in practice, we know it's not. And so you have to go and figure out how to elicit that information, how to go beyond the reference interview um, and how to really... I don't want to use the term upskill because I think for what many of them are trained, many librarians do exactly what they are trained to do. But for people who want to do something a little bit different, there is a different skill set that you need to learn a little bit. Hmm. What do you think about uh, your stakeholders? You know, now or back at the law firm, Bennett Jones, when you were there, being able to clearly understand, you know, the the, the why. Uh, what what why are they searching for, seeking, and how? How quickly and and where can you fill that? I mean, that can you speak a little bit, Zena, about being able to understand stakeholder motivations and how that shapes the priority list? For sure. Um, in my current world, it's a lot easier. So, in my current world, stakeholders are product, they're marketing, they're sales. And it's like, which of those three lovers am I going to pull? Which of those three, who am I doing this research for? Is it somebody in product? Um, and they want to know what the competitor product looks like, or they want to know how to leapfrog the competitor product. And this is where you're going to get into things like, you know, reverse analysis of other people's products. Am I doing this for marketing? And it's how do we present ourselves to the world to look like we're better and farther ahead than our competition or whatever that messaging needs to be. Um, or is it sales? And is it somebody trying to close a deal? And what's that little nugget that's gonna help them close a deal that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, and so it's a lot clearer. It's like, you're making a sale, you're building a product, you're marketing a product. In professional services, it becomes a little more difficult to understand what the end state goal is because sometimes it is research for research sake and you don't necessarily know that. And so you'll dig in and ask a whole bunch of questions. And at the end of the day, there isn't really an answer beyond, oh, I just wanted to know, or I'm meeting with a client and I wanted to be prepared. And so you're really doing research for research sake. When you start getting into some of the more strategic conversations, and I had the benefit of working with the partnership and the, and the management group at Bennett Jones, um, when you start digging into some of the big questions there, then it becomes, how do I run this business? But you have to balance that with what it means to run a business in a partnership which is not the same as what it means to run a business when you're running um, a public business or selling a product or selling a widget, right? And so you have to balance the needs of the partnership with the needs of the business and it, they're not always in tandem. 
And so it becomes a little bit more difficult in the professional services. And it would be the same um, in any professional service, just the, uh, the leverage and the, the number of partners shrinks when you go outside of um, law and you look at professional services and tax or accounting. It's the same sort of um, pyramid, but the base is much wider and it's much smaller at the top than in law firms. Would you say the old uh, adage of takes seven years to build trust? You know, is that, uh, do, you, do you think there's any uh, credibility to that going back to your days at Bell? Totally. Totally. Um, it takes seven years to build trust. It takes seven minutes to erode it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. And building relationships is, is so critical to this business. Um, it's critical to any business, but I think particularly if you're doing competitive intelligence, you need to know, people need to know that they can trust you. People need to know that you are going to have conversations on their behalf where you're not going to embarrass them, where you're not going to say something out of turn. Um, where you're going to interview people or do some sort of elicitation, but they know that you're not going to give away the, ba the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. Um, I think relationships are what allow you to do some of that primary research without um, hurting any party and making sure that you sort of um, don't cross any ethical lines or, or moral lines as well. It's really hard to build trust. Um, but I do think the longer you stay at something and the more you're consistent with what you deliver, the easier it is to build that trust. And I do think seven years, and, and I remember when um, Craig first brought that story, the whole seven years in the CIA and nobody sticks around the CIA for seven years. Um, it, it stuck with me and it's something that I, I do reference a fair bit because I do think um, we're so you know, we live in a very instant gratification world and we live in a world where people are dating on phones and swiping right and swiping left. And that's how we're building relationships. Not everybody, um, but it's sort of a, you know, you like something, you connect with people in a very superficial way. And I don't mean superficial in that it's not a good connection. I just mean, it's a very quick hit kind of way that we're connecting with people, but to really build trust is a, is, it is a long-term thing. Um, and it does take time. It's non-committal if you don't have the time invested. You know that time being our scarcest resource. You can always go raise more money, uh, right. but you can't get the time back. And for someone to invest the time to build relationships where trust and and confidence really exists in others, um, that represents a sacrifice. And that's actually a big theme of the whole running into the fog pandemic lifestyle, pandemic economy, all that kind of stuff is that choices aren't really choices unless you're sacrificing something. Um, and that those sacrifices are intentional. They're not uh, accidental or afterthoughts. You know, you're, you're willfully saying, I'm going to choose this person or employer or pathway because it's what I think will be best not only for me, but for those who rely on me, for my stakeholders, if you will, my, my family, my colleagues, my tribe. And the consequences of that are, I can't do all the things that totally. are in front of me. So you've made some choices, you know, in your, uh, in your life and in your career that have guided you to where you are now. And I guess 
there's an old cliched podcaster question around, you know, what would you tell your 20 year old self, Zena? Uh, you know, knowing what you know now, uh, how would you look back on the last few years and, and uh, what advice would you give that 20 year old who's trying to figure out what they want to do with themselves and where they want to go? And obviously, you know, no, no regrets, as they say. Uh, but at the same time, there may be more expedient ways to get here. <laughs> so any thoughts on that? I mean, there may be more expedient ways to get to where I got. But I think the one thing I would tell my 20 year old self is like to chill the F, F out. out. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, we all get to a place eventually where we should be. Um, and I was a very, you know, I like to plan everything. I liked, I liked to plan everything. I liked to know that there was a path forward mm -hmm. and I still do, but I also recognize that as much as you plan, you can't plan for every contingency. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and, you know, I, not to bring it down and I'm sure the two of you can relate, but I think for me, one of the pivotal moments was losing a parent in my 20s. And mm. I think when you lose a parent in your 20s or any catastrophic event happens, it changes the way you think about life. It changes your perspective and it makes you realize that you don't have all the answers. You're never going to have all the answers. And as somebody said to me at that moment in, in my life, they said, you know, when you lose a parent, you become that much less of a child. Mm. And I think having to um, having to wade through that and, and sort of understand you're, you are now an adult in a different way um, really helps you put things in perspective. And I think not to harp on that moment, but I do think, you know, it's the kind of thing that my 20 year old self would have never understood. Although a few years later I did um, just chill out, man, things are going to be okay. Have a plan. Like don't go into it. Don't go into the fog without a flashlight but know that like that could go out, right? Like know your batteries could die or whatever and go into it with a plan, but recognize that it's okay to pivot and you might need to pivot. Right, right yeah. on. Maybe sometimes a flashlight and fog isn't the best tool to use. Maybe a totally. walking stick so you can kind of feel around a little bit, right? Yeah, either uh, one, right? And, and no one perspective is the only one that you need to have, right? Yeah, let's talk about, uh, I know you have at least one brother. You know, when you, when you uh, I don't know about other siblings. Uh, Just the one. You know, when you lost that parent in your 20s, yeah. was it like me and Eric losing our parents when I was in my 20s? You know, it kind of bonded you in a way that looking back on it, you're, so it's, great, you're it, grateful it's, for? It's funny. Like you guys said, you're different. My brother and I could not be more different if we tried. Um, people meet us and they're like very confused um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that we're related. We don't look alike. We don't. There's some, there's some similarities in our intonation and the way we carry ourselves, but very, very different people. Um, we were always very close, which is kind of funny. We're still very close, even though we're completely different. But I think we respect one another's differences. Um, or we just acknowledge them and roll our eyes and like, I wouldn't choose you as a friend, but you're my brother. So I will love you and be very close to you. I'm very close with his daughters as well. Um, so I don't know that it brought us closer. It's certainly, I think, because we're so different, it's a shared experience um, that we otherwise might not have had. Um, but, uh, you know, we each grieve in our own ways and we're, we can, I mean, that never goes away, right? Like sure. it's been however many years and we still continue to grieve in our own ways. But yeah, I think it's a shared experience. 
but certainly I, I could not work the way the two of you work together with my brother. Five minutes and we'd be killing each other. <laughs> we couldn't either 18 years ago. <laughs> it took a little while to get while. into our little tempo. For sure. We still have, we still have I, I love to tell the story about us traveling together, coming back from a conference, and I was trying to check us in at the little kiosk in Delta, and Eric wanted to get a piece of that action. You know, he tried to start hitting the hitting the buttons on the on the little kiosk terminal, and I slapped his hand. I said, "I got this," and you know, we moved on. But uh, yeah, we we still have those moments. Yeah. Cool. Well. Zeno, what's next for you? Where does uh, where does the world take uh, Madame Applebaum from here? And what's uh, what's on the horizon? Obviously, we're hoping that this whole COVID pandemic thing comes to a swift conclusion. But what's next for Zena? And we'll, and then tell us where we can find you. Where can uh, where can people who hear this uh, track you down and keep track of you? So, what's next for me is a great question. I mean, I'm enjoying my journey and my time at Thomson Reuters. Um, you know, hoping to spend some more time there and hopefully uh, continue to grow and evolve at Thomson Reuters. Um, what's next? I'd love to get back into teaching. I've sort of taken a hiatus just by virtue of, well, SLA board work um, and some of the other stuff that I was doing. Um, possibly have another book in the works uh, with some of our colleagues and some of our CI fellows. We're trying to pull something together and hopefully get another book out. Um, maybe by saying it out loud, we'll actually commit to it because we've been talking about it for a couple of years, but I think we're, we're going to cross the finish line in 21. That's my plan. Ask August Jackson how that's working out for him. Cause we did that a couple of podcasts ago with him. He's like there, I said it out loud. So I guess I got to do it now. All right. I'll call, I'll call August. Do you, soon want, see. Do, you, do you want to publicly call out any of these uh, book uh, co-authors so just so we get uh well, my co-authors, I don't know if they've been guests or not are, um, uh, editing along myself and uh, Phil Britton and uh, the American me, as we like to joke, Elise Knuckles. Um, and we're trying to look at a very tactical version of competitive intelligence. And so really write a book that teaches you the how-to um, from various perspectives. And I think we have a pretty good lineup of contributors to the book as well. Um, so now we just need to stop talking about it and actually do it. Sweet. So it sounds like we need to have Phil and Elise on in the not too distant future. Let's make yeah, it. Yeah, up. yeah, do it. Um, so hopefully that'll come out in 21. And I want more baseball in my future. Um, yeah. I, I want to get back out there. I'm done with the snow. I'm done with COVID. Um, and I just want to get back outside. So we'll see. That's my plan for now. I just want to get back to Toronto and hang out and have a cocktail. And so good. Enjoy the sun. Soak in the sun. Yeah, do it. I think you guys, you guys should be vaccinated by July or something. If not earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. They're saying September for us, but there's still plenty of sun in September. So there you go. So you're a blogger. Tell us where they can find the blog and then uh, Twitter. So you can find me at ZAppleCI or ZAppleCI. I am Canadian, so that's how I spell my name. Um, so ZAppleCI on Twitter, LinkedIn, of course, is a great place to find me. And then I blog for Three Geeks and a Law Blog. So check that out as well. I recently wrote a post on um, trust and influence and what those two things mean and, and how they're shaping our world today with all of the, um, all of the stuff, all of the barrage of media and expectations on us as individuals. So check that out. Three Geeks and a Law Blog, ZAppleCI, and LinkedIn. 
Fantastic. Well, Derek, I'm going to let you have the final final word. Uh, I'll shut up for a change and let Derek get a word in edgewise here. I, I am too tempted to go somewhere really fun with the final conclusion of this. Really? It may not be what you think, but I want to hear how the Bigfoot, Littlefoot thing got started between you two. Oh, yeah. You, you probably thought I was going elsewhere. I'm, I'm going to no. save that for another edition. So, I want to hear about the Bigfoot, Littlefoot thing. The Bigfoot, Littlefoot. So Eric and I were at a conference. I don't even remember which one. SLA, Skip. I don't know. One of those, of them. probably. One of those. <laughs> um, and we had both of our, like, we were sitting beside each other, and our feet were kind of, like, stretched out. And I noticed that, like, my foot is very little, and Derek's is, or Eric's, rather, is large. And so I took a picture of it and then it just became a thing that we kept doing every time we see each other. We have big foot, little foot, and we take pictures and you always know whose foot is whose. That's, that's a fact, sister. Um, My shoes tend to be much nicer. Just saying. They, universally, your shoes are nicer. <laughs> I want to say that first one, we were bowling and we had bowling shoes. Oh, that's, that's right. That's probably right. So we had a roughly equivalently nice shoes on for that very first one. And then mine went all right. downhill and yours improved substantially from that inaugural. Right. I know okay. it's been so long. I love that story. And I, I think for uh, Eric's 20th anniversary book, I even put a picture of that in there. I'm gonna yeah, have to take that I picture out and find it. And if you do go look me up on Twitter, you will see the Bigfoot Littlefoot because it's there. Yeah. Right on. What so, uh, Zena, thanks for your friendship and, you know, all the advocacy and, you know, I hope you feel it in return. And we just love that you came on uh, this show and shared your journey of running through the fro fog. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, or, the that, frog. Uh, or the frog, whatever. I'm still getting used to saying that real fast. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, thanks, thanks for so having much. me, guys. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. And uh, hopefully we can see each other in the not too distant future. Well, the Joe Bros are always in your corner, my dear, and uh, we've always got your back. And uh, we'll get you and Phil and Elise on here when you guys have a manuscript uh, ready to submit and give a little sneak preview. Uh, we we'll love that. A, do a little tripartite uh, interview of that. We love that. And now I need to tell them that I've committed them to that. But That's right. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry. I might I might beat you to it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Alpha said what? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Thanks so, so much, Thanks, you know. guys. Great to an see awesome you. Day.